It's good to be with you guys today. For those of you that may be new or don't know me, my name is Matt Carter. I'm the pastor that started this church about 14 years ago, and I serve as the pastor of preaching and vision here. August is always a weird time for me. I come back after summer preaching series and start preaching again, but this is about the exact same time that I start coaching my son's football team and, and then me practicing my sermon over the course of the week. And so bear with me. It always takes me a couple of weeks to get my voice back. And so I apologize. <coughs> I'll probably be coughing a little bit. It's just part of me getting old. Amen. Any old people in here? Two of us. Awesome. Thank you. We hang out sometime. But um, we finished with the book of Ephesians, been in it for a couple of years, and next week we're going to be starting what, uh, a series uh, that we're calling The Art of Neighboring, and it's really cool because we're joining with a ton of churches all over the city of Austin in doing this series. You'll probably see people advertising it all over the city, but the heartbeat is that we're going to join churches that love Jesus all over the city, and we're just going to talk together about what the scripture says about reaching our neighbors for Christ and being good neighbors and, and reaching out to them with the love of Jesus. And that's next week. I'll be here, going to be teaching on that. But today I have just the very rare privilege at the Austin Stone of preaching on whatever I want to preach on. Um, I don't have a book of the Bible I'm preaching through, don't have a series. I just got to pick a scripture, which is pretty cool. And so I picked um, a text that I uh, just had a basically a quiet time in this summer and some of my time with the Lord, and it's Luke chapter 7, verse 36. And so if you want to uh, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 7, verse 36, and join me there. If you don't have a Bible, that's fine. We're going to have the scripture behind me on the screen, and you can join us. <clears throat> but basically what this story is about, um, Jesus has been invited over to this Pharisee's house to have dinner. And the Pharisees, if you don't know, the Pharisees were, were religious leaders of the Jewish community. And um, a little bit about the Pharisees, they were experts in the law. And so because they were experts in the law, they honestly just thought they were better than everybody else. They thought they were super godly. And so Jesus is having dinner at this Pharisee's house. And then all of a sudden this woman walks in the door. She walks in the door and the scripture basically tells us that she's a former prostitute. And what the story is about is this interaction between the Pharisee, this religious leader, and this former prostitute in, in Jesus. And the Pharisee gets real offended and Jesus addresses the Pharisee. So that's what the story is about. But I want you to keep in mind as we jump into this story, I want you to keep in mind something, that one of the things Jesus taught about often during his ministry was that in the world, you're going to have what Jesus called wheat and tares. You're going to have what's called wheat and tares, Jesus said. And when Jesus talked about wheat, he was talking about a group of people that are actually believers. He called them wheat. These are people that... Um, were actually genuine lovers of God, that were followers of Christ. But he also said that there's a group of people, um, and he referred to them as tares. And these are people, uh, you know, tares look like wheat, but they're not actually wheat, they're weeds. And, and the point is, is that from all outward appearances, these are going to be people that kind of look like lovers of God and followers of God, but in fact, they're not really believers in the Lord. And so what Jesus does in his story today is he demonstrates the difference between wheat and tares. He demonstrates the difference between people who are genuine followers of God and people who just kind of are pretending to be followers of God. He's going to stop right in the middle of, of this interaction between this woman and the Pharisee. And what he's going to do is he's going to point out, listen, he's going to point out the, the evidences 
of a person that's a genuine lover of God. Okay, he's going to kind of compare and contrast the two people in the story. And so what I want for you to do today, what, and my prayer for you this week has been, is that you would listen to the evidences that Jesus gives of a genuine follower of Christ, and you would ask yourself the question, regardless of how long you've been going to church, but that you would ask yourself the question, do I see those evidences in my life? All right, so let's read this together. Luke chapter 7, verse 36. He says, now one of the Pharisees was requesting him, that's Jesus, to dine with him. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman, let me, let me stop right there and explain what's going on. So when somebody invited you over to your house, they had a table, oftentimes in a courtyard, it would be low to the ground, and you didn't sit at chairs like we do today. You would actually lay on the ground, I think it was on your left side, and then you would eat with your right hand, and so your feet would be away from the table. And so it's important that you understand that, moving on with the story. And so Jesus comes in, he's at the Pharisee's house, and he's reclining at the table. That's what's going on. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And she uh, learned <coughs> that he was reclining at the table at the Pharisee's house. And she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears <clears throat> and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with perfume. And now when the Pharisee who invited him, Jesus, saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him and that she is a sinner. And so you got Jesus. He's come over to this Pharisee's house. We don't really know why the Pharisee brought him over. We don't know if he liked Jesus. Probably not. He's probably trying to trick him in some shape, form, or fashion. But this woman walks in that the Scriptures calls a sinner, someone who's a sinner. And, and basically what that means is that she was probably a former prostitute. It could have been the woman in John chapter 8. Uh, that was caught in adultery that Jesus saves from the Pharisees that were trying to stone her. We don't really know who she is. All we know is that this was a woman, hear this, that at some point in time in the past had encountered Jesus and had encountered his message of forgiveness. And, and, and she hears that he's at this Pharisee's house and so she just walks in the door. She sees Jesus, she goes straight to him, doesn't pay attention to anybody else. She falls on her knees, she starts weeping, she wet his feet with her tears, she pours perfume on his feet, starts kissing his feet, and then takes the hair of her head and begins to wipe the feet of Jesus with her hair. Okay, and the Pharisee sees this. He's this religious guy. And again, remember, he thinks he's better than everybody else. He's this religious guy. He's righteous. He's holy. He sees this happen. And, and, and as all this thing starts playing out, the Pharisee starts muttering under his breath. And what he says is this. He says, you know, if Jesus was for real, if Jesus was really a prophet, if Jesus was really who he says he is, number one, he would know that this woman that's here is a sinner. He would know that. And number two, he probably wouldn't let her touch him if he really knew that she was a sinner. So Jesus obviously can't be who he says he is. And so Jesus, doesn't, Scripture doesn't really say, but Jesus either hears him say that or Jesus knows what's in his heart because Jesus just stops right there, just kind of cuts him off and starts to teach. Now look at it again, Luke chapter 7, verse 39. It says, when the Pharisee who had <clears throat> invited him saw this, he said to himself, this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who's touching him, that she's a sinner. 
And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And so just Jesus hears him, whatever, cuts him off, said, Simon, I got something I need to say to you. And Simon answered and said, say it, teacher. And then Jesus begins to tell a story in verse 41. Jesus said, a certain moneylender had two debtors. Certain moneylender had two debtors. One owned 500 denarii and the other 50. Just to put it into context, that would be about $100,000 compared to $10,000. Jesus says, you got a guy that lent money. Two people owed him money. One owned 100,000. One owned 10,000. And watch what Jesus says. In verse 32, he says, and when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. And then he asked the Pharisee a question. He says, now, which one of them will love him more? Which one of those two people are going to love him more? And Simon answered and said, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged correctly. Okay, so this Pharisee, this guy that thinks he's so awesome and so righteous, he sees this woman come in. She's kissing Jesus' feet. She's wetting his feet with her tears. She's wiping his feet. And she, he looks at this woman, and he's completely judging her. He's looking at her with the stain. He looks at Jesus with the stain. And then something happens. Jesus stops, and he tells a story about two people that owed money. He says, you got two people, Simon the Pharisee, that owed money. You got one person that owed $100,000. You got another person that owned $10,000. But then he makes a statement. He says, but neither one of them could pay. And then he asked the Pharisee a question. He said, Mr. Pharisee, which one of those two people is going to love the money lender more? And the Pharisee kind of begrudgingly answers and says, well, I suppose it's the guy that got or the person that got forgiven the greater debt. And Jesus said, that is absolutely right. The person with the greater debt is going to love the moneylender more. And I want you to hear something. Church, when Jesus said this, you want to know why they killed him? This is one of the reasons. When Jesus said that statement right there, it was like a slap in the face to that Pharisee. Jesus might as well come up and just slapped him in front of everybody because what Jesus just said to this religious leader, what Jesus just said to this guy who thought he was the greatest gift of God to the Israelite people, what Jesus just looked at this Pharisee and said, he said, hey, Mr. Pharisee, you see this prostitute right here? She loves God more than you do. That's what he just said. Jesus looks at this guy who was a religious leader that spent his life in the temple and he says, hey, you want to know what it actually looks like to worship God? You want to know what it looks like to actually love God? He's not you. Jesus points at the prostitute and says, that's it. Okay, now hear this. When you think about that story, the point, the point of Jesus' story that he told, listen, is not to say that the Pharisee had a small amount of sin and that the woman had a large amount of sin. That's not the point of the story. That, that, that may possibly be true, but it's not really what Jesus is trying to get at, that she had this huge sin, Pharisee had a small amount of sin. And, and I believe that for a couple of reasons. One, Jesus, the biggest problem he had with anybody was the Pharisees. He called them whitewashed tombs. He said, Pharisees are guys that when you look at them on the outside, they look great. They look like they possibly love God. They do all the right things, but inside they're tombs. They're rotten. They're decaying. Look great on the outside. Inside does not match up with the outside. Number one, we know that. And number two, Jesus said this. But I never really paid much attention to it till this week. He said both people had a debt. 
Both people had a debt and neither one of them could pay. Neither one of them could pay. That's critical. Look at the text again, verse 41. He said, a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. And so whether one, whether you owe $10,000 or $100,000, if you don't have the ability to pay, it doesn't matter. You have a debt you cannot pay. And that's the point that Jesus is trying to make. The point of the story is that neither one of the Pharisee nor the prostitute could pay the debt that was owed to God. And here's what he is trying to say. Here's the, here's the point of the story that Jesus is trying to make. It's that, and hear this, some people, some people are going to realize how sinful they are and some people aren't. Some people, some of us are going to realize how sinful we are and some people aren't. And Jesus' point is it's the people that realize how sinful they are. And it's the people that realize how much they've been forgiven because of that sin. Those are going to be the people that love God. That's what he's saying. When you realize your sinfulness, you'll realize how much you've been forgiven. And when you realize how much you've been forgiven, the result is going to be you love the Lord. All right? Now, that's the first evidence that Jesus gives in this story of a genuine follower of God. That's the first evidence Jesus gives in the story of a person that has a true salvation versus a false salvation. It's that you are, number one, you are deeply aware of your own sinfulness in need of a Savior. That's step number one. You're deeply aware of your own sinfulness in need of a Savior. And church, that's exactly what Jesus meant when he made the statement in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. You remember that? Sermon on the Mount, probably the, very, or probably the most important sermon that's ever been preached in history, Sermon on the Mount. Jesus stands up on the side of the mountain, and the very first sentence out of his mouth are, is this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, hey, you want to know if you're going to heaven? You've got to be poor in spirit. Those who are poor in spirit are the ones that are going to go to heaven. What in the world does he mean? When he says you got to be poor in spirit in order to go to heaven. Well, to understand what it means, you got to look at the word poor. Now, there are two words in the Greek um, for poor that's often used uh, in the New Testament. And I used to say, like pronounce in English, the two Greek words, but one of them sounds completely vulgar when you say it in English. So I quit saying it because everybody kind of snickers like a fifth grade boy when I say it. And so you're just going to have to trust me. I'm not going to say the words, but there's two Greek words uh, for poor. And the first one, the first Greek word for poor, um, is a word that means this. It's a word that means that you don't have any money, but you have the ability to provide for yourself. You don't have any money, you're poor, but you somewhat have the ability to kind of provide for yourself the basic necessities of life. A good way to think about it would be like college poor, right? It's poor, how you were poor in college. Got any college students in here this morning? Okay, sweet. You're, you're poor, right? Um, you, but you have the ability somewhat to provide for yourself. If you're hungry and, and you don't really have much money, what do you do? You go to the couch. You take off the cushions. You look for change. You go to Taco Bell, right? You have the ability to provide for yourself. Well, that's not the word that Jesus uses here, even though that's often used in the New Testament. He's not 
saying, blessed are those who are kind of poor, spiritually speaking, um, but they do have the ability to kind of pull themselves up spiritually from their bootstraps and, and eventually make it to heaven. That's not at all what Jesus is saying here. Okay, he uses a completely different word for poor in the Greek, and, and this is what the word that he uses means. It's a word that means you're poor, and you have absolutely no ability whatsoever to provide for yourself in any shape, form, or pass, uh, way. You're just completely destitute with no ability to pull yourself out of that poverty. It would be like this. My son, Sammy's 10, and I remember the day that he was born back in 2005. And it would be like the day that he was born, me picking him up, no diaper, no no clothing, no nothing, and just taking him out to the bus stop on the day he was born and just setting him down on the bus stop and saying, all right, buddy, uh, you're on your own now, good luck, and just walking away to never come back. What kind of poor would Sammy have been in that moment? Is he college poor? No. Does he have the ability to kind of crawl around and scrounge up some change and make it to Taco Bell and get something to eat? No. He's absolutely, utterly, completely destitute. And listen, unless someone else steps into the picture and picks him up and provides for him, he is going to die. That's the word that Jesus uses. He said, blessed, blessed are those who are absolutely, utterly, totally, completely impoverished in their spirit. Blessed are those who realize unless somebody else steps into the picture and provides for me spiritually, I am going to die. Jesus says, those are the people that are gonna go to heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom, okay? In other words, what Jesus is saying is unless you're that, unless you are poor in spirit, you will not go to heaven. And here's the thing with the story. You've got two people in the story that are poor in spirit. You've got a woman that's a prostitute that is poor in spirit. You've got a Pharisee that is poor in spirit. But Jesus is pointing out one of them realizes that she is poor in spirit and one of them does not realize that he is poor in spirit. And that is the difference between a person that genuinely loves the Lord and someone that does not. And so I would ask you today, I don't care how long you've been going to church, are you poor in spirit? Are you poor in spirit? Are you a person that realizes their sinfulness to the point that you know that unless a savior comes in and picks you up, you are going to die? Are you poor in spirit? Or are you the kind of person that looks at other people and thinks, well, they're, they're worse sinners than me? Are you the kind of person that, like the Pharisee, walks into a room and and you're aware of everybody else's sin in the room but your own? Are you the kind of person that, that when you think about why you should go to heaven, some of the first things that come to your mind are the things that you've done well and therefore some way that, some reason you deserve it? The first evidence that Jesus gives of a person that is genuinely saved is a person that realizes deeply their own desperate need for a savior. That's number one, here's number two. 
The second distinction Jesus makes between a true follower of Christ, a person with a true salvation, and, and, and a tear, someone that doesn't really follow Christ. Interestingly, interestingly the, the second evidence that he gives are tears. Not me, Jesus. It's the second evidence he gives to the Pharisee are tears. Let's read it together. Luke chapter 7, verse 44. He says, turning to the woman. And so he looks at the Pharisee. He, he stops the Pharisee. He tells the story of the money lenders. He says, evidence that you're a true follower of God is you realize your deep need for a Savior. And then the second thing he does is he points to the woman. He says, Mr. Pharisee, Simon, look at her. He says, turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? Pharisee, look at her, he says. Do you see this woman? He said, I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. Look at the next text. It says, but she has wet my feet with her tears. You see that? Jesus says, you didn't give me any water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears. It was customary back in the day because people wore sandals. They walked on dirt all the time, not pavement. And when you came into somebody's house, they would have water there and you could wash their feet. Jesus looks at this guy. He says, number one, she realizes her need for a savior. You don't. And number two, you gave me no water for my feet, but this woman has absolutely wet my feet with her tears. He points that out to the Pharisee. Now, church, we don't know why she was crying. We don't know why she was weeping. It it could have been because of remorse over her sin. That's entirely possible. But it also could have been that she was experiencing a deep and profound thankfulness over the offer of forgiveness that Jesus had given her. I believe it's probably the latter, that that she's weeping not because of some great remorse over her sin. I think that probably had already happened or she wouldn't have come. I think she was crying out of thankfulness over the offer of, uh, of forgiveness of sin that she'd been given by Jesus. And I think that for this reason. Have you ever heard of the phrase, the burden of sin? You ever heard of that phrase? It's the, the, the burden of sin. That phrase exists for this reason. Because sin is a burden. Sin is a burden. Those of you here today that are walking in some sin and you know it, you know that's true. Sin is a burden. And it is a burden that you were never created to experience. It's a burden that you were never designed and created to experience. Church, you and I were created by God to be in perfect fellowship with him. That's why you were created. God made you to be in perfect fellowship with him, completely free from the burden of sin. But unfortunately, what happens? We sin, right? And when we sin, when sin enters into our lives and it messes up that perfect fellowship with him, we experience things like guilt. When we sin, we experience things like shame. We experience things like hopelessness. We experience pointlessness. When you sin, uh, it places a burden upon your soul that you were never created to experience. That's the burden of sin. And so what's amazing is, is that when you come in faith to Jesus and you trust in his shed blood on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins and you enter back into the relationship that you were created to be in, here's what happens. Jesus, through his blood, he removes that guilt and he removes that shame and he removes that hopelessness and he removes that pointlessness and when that happens, the burden of your sin is lifted.
the burden of your sin is lifted. And then, but the problem is, is that we're still sinners. So every once in a while we're going to sin, we'll fill that burden. But there's going to come a day where we're going to go to heaven and Jesus in glory is going to remove the burden of sin from us forever. Amen? We'll never experience it again. And I'm telling you, folks, the vast majority of time in my life, the vast majority of time in the years that I've been in a ministry, when it hits somebody, when the gospel hits them, that I had a debt that I could not pay, and that Jesus takes my sin and he removes it from me as far as the east is from the west, and the burden of their sin is lifted from them, the vast majority of time that I've experienced and I've seen, the result of that typically are tears of joyfulness. I mean, me, me personally, I'm, I'm not a big crier. I'm not a big crier. I've cried in two movies in my whole life. One was, I'm not going to tell you because I'm embarrassed, and, and the second one was Lonesome Dove. I've cried in two movies in my whole life. Not a big crier. Don't just walk around crying. But there's something about the gospel. There's something about Jesus that just absolutely messes me up every time. I can't get away from the gospel, from the burden that's been lifted from my soul. And there's going to come a day I'm going to see Jesus face to face. I actually think about that moment a lot. The moment where I'm finally going to see Jesus, where my faith is going to be sight. And I've, I mean, I've, at least my part, I got my part planned out what I'm going to do. I, I guarantee you one thing, if he lets me, I, I'm, I promise you I'll follow at his feet. And I guarantee you I'll be crying. I'll, I'll wet his feet with my tears. And you go, well, wait a minute, man, I thought there wasn't any tears in heaven. That's, that's not what the scripture says. The scripture doesn't say there'd be no tears in heaven. The scripture says he will wipe away every tear from their eye. I'm gonna wet his feet with my tears. And the, in that moment, those tears are not gonna be tears of regret over my sin. My sin's gone by that point going to be tears of thankfulness and joy over the burden of sin that has been completely lifted from me forever. And I think that's what's going on here. Now listen, listen real carefully here what I'm saying. I'm not saying that if you've never cried a tear over Jesus, you're not saved. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that crying is what saves you. I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying is that Jesus very, very clearly points out in this story that a person that has a true salvation, that a true lover of God is going to have a deep thankfulness over the burden of sin that's been lifted from them and the debt of sin that has been paid. He's absolutely saying that. Now, let's look at this verse one more time because he shows us one more thing that's an evidence in this verse of a person that truly loves God. And this one is fascinating to me. It's been messing me up all week. Never knew this till this week. Let's read it. Luke chapter 7, verse 44. Turning towards the woman, he says to Simon the Pharisee, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears. Watch what he says next, what Jesus says. He says, and wiped them with her hair. Jesus takes the time to mention to the Pharisee that, Mr. Pharisee, not only does this woman wet my feet, wet my feet with her tears, but she wiped them with her hair. The gospel writer Luke takes time. He mentions it also. 
when he's first setting up the picture in the uh, scripture in John, or rather Luke 7, 36, he takes the time to mention that she was um, wiping his feet with the hair of her head and kept kissing his feet. Now, what in the world is going on there? Why is that such a big deal? Why does Luke and Jesus take the time to point out the deal with her hair? And here's the answer. Because when she was wiping his feet with her hair in that moment, she was demonstrating that Jesus was the most valuable person in her entire life. Now, why do I say that? Why does her wiping his feet with her hair, why does that demonstrate that he was the most valuable person in her life? And the answer to the question is because Jewish women always, always, always kept their hair up. For a woman... In that culture, it was a sign of deep immodesty to be seen by anybody but your husband with your hair down. As a matter of fact, the, the first time that a Jewish man would ever see his wife with her hair down was on their wedding night. The woman would come into the wedding chamber and the first thing she would do was she would take her hair down. It was a, it was a sign to the man that I'm gonna let you and I'm gonna let you alone see this intimate side of me. And so the fact that this woman in public takes the hair of her head, Luke says, and wipes the feet of Jesus with it was an act of unthinkable intimacy. It was an act of unbelievable intimacy to take your hair down, to anoint a man with perfume, to, to kiss his feet is 100% something that only a wife would do with her husband and only in the most intimate moments of their marriage. It was scandalous. And this Pharisee sees this happening, this religious guy, this guy that thought he had it all together, he sees it happen and he's shocked. He's embarrassed. He thinks it's shameful. But listen, this woman could not care less what the Pharisee thought. She could not care less. She, she walks in the door and, and she, listen, she is so enthralled with her love for Jesus that it's like he is the only person in the room. It's the only person she cares about is him. Jesus looks at the Pharisee who's stunned that this woman is engaging in this unbelievable act of intimacy in front of everybody. And Jesus says, you see this? That's what it looks like when somebody worships me. That's what true salvation looks like. That's what it looks like when someone loves me. I become the most important thing in their life. In church, I'm gonna be honest with you, and I'm not saying this to talk about me or to brag about me or whatever. I just want you to know that I have seen that happen supernaturally in my life. I'm not talking about hair, because I don't have a lot of hair. I'm just talking about Jesus doing something in my heart where he becomes so valuable that my engagement with him kind of makes everything else fade away. I'm naturally, I've talked about this before, I'm naturally just very introverted. I'm, I'm, I'm actually painfully introverted. I, I, it, it's, it's, you know, one of God's great 
displays of his sense of humor that he would make me a preacher that has to stand up on stage and, and talk to people. And, and I, I, I'm never more aware of my uh, introverted nature than when I'm dancing. Anybody understand what I'm talking about? <laughs> my wife loves to dance. She loves it. It's like, seriously, it's her favorite thing in the world to do. And it's literally the least favorite thing in the world for me to do. I don't get dancing. Maybe somebody, why do you like move your body around to music? Like, what is the point of that? But whenever we go to a wedding or when we do something like that, I have to dance with her and I got to do it for a really long time. And so I, I'm like, okay. And I, I go out and, and I do it because I love her and I'll go out there and I'll start dancing. And I'm just, I mean, it is literally the most painful thing I've ever experienced in my whole life because people will see me and they're like, oh, that's the pastor of the Austin Stone. He's doing the worm, you know, on the ground or whatever. And, <laughs> and it's just, uh, I mean, I don't even have words, Aaron Ivy, for that. I just, it, it's unbelievable painful, painful experience when I do that. And I, I just don't like it. I don't like people looking at me and stuff. And so, but here's the thing. There's something that happens when I worship God. There, there's something that happens when I get the opportunity either in my, in my closet at home or right here on the front row or, or when I begin to engage with the Lord and talk with the Lord and, and worship God. There's something about that that, that everything else in, in, that's around me kind of fades away. The fact that somebody might look, be looking at me, I literally, I'm not aware of it in church. I want you to understand something. It's the only place in my whole life that happens. It's the only, and I can't explain it other than, other than what's happening here in the story. A couple of weeks ago, I hadn't even told anybody this. A couple of weeks ago, I was flying back from a conference I was speaking at in Nashville, and, and I was bored on the airplane, and I was sitting there and had my headphones on, and I'm, I'm going through the music on my iPod, and I came across some Christmas music, little Austin Stone Christmas music, because that's what I do in August. I listen to Christmas music, and I see Oh Holy Night, and I play it because it's the greatest song that's ever been written, and, and I'm listening to Oh Holy Night, and I, you know, I get to that part where Christ is the Lord. Oh, praise his name forever for his power and his glory will evermore shall reign. And, and, and like it gets done and it kind of hits me. I think I got my hand in the air and I'm crying. And the guy next to me is looking at me. This look like, dude, what in the world is wrong with you? So I put my hand down, I put my earphones off and I just kind of look at him and he goes, are you all right? <laughs> and this is what came out. I just said, yeah, I'm fine, man. I'm just listening to Christmas music. That's all. That's all. Anyway. <laughs> and again, and again, I'm, I'm not saying you have to humiliate yourself on an airplane to be a follower of Jesus, but what I am saying is that Jesus clearly points to this incredible intimate action by this woman publicly letting her hair down and wiping his feet to the Pharisee and says, this is evidence that she loves me. And I think that's probably what the Apostle Paul was saying. And don't turn there, but in Philippians chapter 3, he says, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things as a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Last thing. Last one, I'm, I'm done here in just a couple of minutes. Hang with me. There's one last evidence Jesus gives of a person that's walking in a true salvation, and I want you to hear it. In Luke 7, 44, he says, And turning to the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. 
He gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has forgiven little loves little. And Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, watch what he says. He says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The final evidence, and by the way, the most important evidence, that you are walking in a true salvation, not a false one, that you're a true lover of God, is faith. It's not worship, it's not tears, it's not church attendance, it's faith. It means to believe into something. It doesn't mean you, you intellectually believe it. It means you take all of who you are and you trust, you trust yourself into it. Jesus say, says in front of all those people, all those Pharisees that think they'd earned their way into heaven, he says, I want you to know what saved you. The greatest evidence of your salvation is that you have believed in to me, Jesus said. And that's why he said in John 3, 16, I don't need my notes because I have it memorized. For God so loved the world <laughs> that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, what, believes into him will not perish but have eternal life. Jesus very clearly gives us four things. He says you gotta have a deep realization of your own sin and your need for a savior. Are you poor in spirit? And I have a deep thankfulness and joy that that forgiveness has been offered you. And then Jesus will become the most valuable person in your life. And all that stuff happens because of faith, of trust in his shed blood on the cross. Not your work, but his. Let's pray together. If you're here today, as, as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, I know that none of us in this room are perfect, but if, if you see those things in your life, that's great news. You're saved, that's, that's awesome. And, and today our worship should be just um, a thankfulness for the great work that he's done in us. If you're here, maybe you've been coming to church for a while, there's probably a pretty good group of people that are, are coming to church for a long time maybe even, but you're like, man, I, I don't see these evidences in my life. It doesn't mean you're a horrible person. It just means that you need to ask Jesus to change you. You need to ask Jesus to come and change your heart so that you see his value. And finally, for those of you in the room that have, have never in your life trusted into Jesus and his work on the cross for the forgiveness of your sin, I wanna invite you in the best way you know how today to do that. Just tell him, just talk to him. Say, Jesus, I know that I'm walking in the burden of sin 
And I'd like for you to remove that burden. And so I believe that if I trust in what you did on the cross, my sin can be forgiven. And you say that to him today. And he will save you. We love you, Lord. I thank you today for this great gospel. I pray many would be, to say, be saved today through it. And that we would be a church that celebrates and is thankful for all that you've done. So we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Church, let's stand together.